Welcome to the Urban Golf Podcast. Today we have Reed Dickens on. Reed started his career in the White House, then went into sports and founded one of the most disruptive companies in baseball, Marucci Sports. And now he's actually in golf with the LA Golf Partners, and he's trying to disrupt the golf industry. Really interesting background. Yeah, I mean, I've known Reed for a while now, I guess probably going on four years, and he is he is an absolute character, and he can just get on one. He's such a sharp thinker, driven. Him and his wife, Sophia, have four kids between the ages of two and 11, and his nine-year-old daughter already has her own company that she's been working on and, you know, speaks Mandarin Chinese. And, you know, the kids are all just, they already have business plans for their lives and their futures. And it's, it's uh, you know, it's it's something else. They're, they're so well acclimated. Me and my wife went and had dinner with them, you know, about a year ago. And we sat down and they're just such sophisticated, nice kids. And it has a lot to do with what Reed having a very clear perspective about who he wants to be as a father, as a businessman, you know, and as and and as a member of society. And so there, the, these conversations were just fascinating. I love how you can go into a, you know, being able to go into a sport like baseball that has such a long established history and go toe to toe with, you know, Louisville Slugger that had dominated the sport for a hundred years and, and come in with a bat and, and disrupt the sport. And a lot of it, it was inherent with how how he did that. And and we're, we learned about that in this episode about what was about his marketing and sales strategy. What's the difference between marketing and sales from his perspective? And then getting into, you know, the depth of, of, of his, of his greater why and, and really what, what he's doing this all for and, and why he's so driven. Yeah. And I thought what he's doing with his wife now with a company doing online education for kids and then emotional te- intelligence, which, which is so interesting for us here at UGP. We we work a lot on making sure that the experience at UGP is is incredible. And in order to create that experience, we need interpersonal skills. And that's what they're trying to teach kids at an early age. And so what what a what a great cause that hopefully can change our mental health issues. And we really appreciate what they're doing. Yeah, and I love how he just goes from talking about subjects like that, very emotional and very serious, to to you know W George W cracking jokes on Air Force One in front of everybody, and you know he he had a funny thing he says where he goes where he talks about how you know he finds it as a compliment that Condoleezza Rice and Colin Powell and George W Bush they they all they all just make fun of him and he find, and he thinks that is uh you know that that's a sign of endearment which which is awesome and and he knows his way in he knows kind of how to get in the door and push his way through he's from a small town in Louisiana and he always knew that that he was going to do something special and his his career and his drive and you know his priorities all kind of line up with that so so much to learn in this episode Again, great guy. Don't let him fool you because with his with his small town act because the guy is an absolute shark. And you know, I hope everyone enjoys this episode as much as I did. Reads reads a great guy, so enjoy it everyone. really appreciate you taking the time to join us today you know we really look forward to this conversation because your story is so unique and so interesting you know your journey from the white house to marucci sports to now you know la golf partners 
I guess let's start in the beginning. Like how, how did you get into politics and how did that start? You know, I, that's the beauty of long form content. I can actually tell you the story. <laughs> I grew up in a small town in Louisiana, a couple of miles from Duck Dynasty, actually. And I saw, I went to Air Force Academy's graduation to see a friend and I saw Bill Clinton's helicopter land in the parking lot. <clears throat> and I watched him get out of the helicopter and all these young people got out. They looked young and he was, you know, wagging his finger and they were all on two cell phones and I thought it looked really cool. And so I told my friend, I said, uh, I'm going to do that one day. And he said, do what? And he said, I'm gonna, I said, I'm going to work for a president. He said, how? I said, I don't know. I didn't even know what a Republican or Democrat was and didn't know anyone in politics. I always joked that I only knew a few people that had air conditioning in their car. And I went home and I bought a notebook and I wrote halfway to the White House on the top. And my mom found it years later. And I started just writing down every person that I thought could help me get to the White House. And so fast forward a few years later, in case I forget, five years later, six years later to the day, I landed in that same helicopter at Air Force Academy in the same parking lot with George W. Bush. It was kind of a cool, cool movie moment. But I was walking down my hall at college, saw a picture with some interns, college and some interns on the wall with a congressman. And I stuck my head on the door to the professor and I said, hey, how do I, how do, I do that? And he said, you, you can't. He said, it's just for donors' kids. And I said, well, if I want to do it, how do I do it? And he goes, you can't. He was like, it's just for donors' kids. He was like, you'll, basically, you'll never be able to do it. So I just kept bugging him. And so I got in the blue pages of my phone book and I called my congressman's office every day for weeks. And they finally called me back and they said, hey, uh, we want you to come up here from August 1st to August 10th. And I didn't realize at the time that wasn't even a real internship, right? Like they were just, I think they had two choices, turn me over to security or let me come up and open mail for 10 days. And so I went up there and literally opened mail every day for 10 days. And on my last day, they said, hey, you're going to go do a tour of the White House. And I was like, no, we're getting here. It's coming. So I went and did a tour of the White House and I was really cheesy and dramatic. And I picked up a couple of leaves and put them in my pocket. And I told my, and this girl said, what are you doing? I said, I'm going to bring these back here when I work here one day. And she goes, how are you going to work at the White House? And I said, I don't know. And so about a year and a half, two years later, a lady who had worked in that congressman's office sent out a blast email. I didn't know it was blast email. I didn't know what that was. I thought it was just to me saying George W. Bush was looking for advisors. And I, and I responded about 200 times and got no response back from her. So I finally tried an old dating trick and said, hey, I'm going to be in Austin. Uh, I'm going to come uh, be an intern on the Bush campaign. And she, and she responded and said, fantastic, come see me. And I was like, now I'm in. So I printed that out, took it to the Bush campaign headquarters and showed it to the security guard. And they were kind of like, you don't have an appointment. And the lady inside the campaign headquarters was actually handing out security badges, intern badges that day. And she was like, you're going to be Sally Canfield's intern? She goes, she didn't tell me that. She's my roommate. And I was thinking that was a bad twist. That was a bad break. And I was like, yeah. So she goes, whatever. So she gives me a badge and I go sit down next to Sally's desk. And I said, I'm your intern. And she goes, I have an intern. I said, yeah. And so a uh, true story. And so I had about a few hundred dollars of cash, slept on someone's couch, ran out of money a few weeks later and knocked on every senior advisor's door. They said, we have a hiring freeze. This one lady said, who are you? Where did you come from? And I was like, now I'm screwed. I'm going to get, I, I honestly thought either the fraud police or the real police were going to come get me. Uh, I was like, I just volunteered. I, I'm really nobody. I came from LSU, not even the real LSU. LSU in Shreveport is like a trailer park. And she <laughs> said, wait right here. So she comes back 30 minutes later and she goes, I talked to our chief of staff. She goes, I'm giving you a job. She goes, I assume you've had an, I assume you majored in business or accounting. I said, no. And she said, I assume you've had an accounting class. I said, no. She said, I assume you've balanced the checkbook. And I said, no. And she goes, oh boy. She goes, well, you have a job in accounting. She goes, 
I think you're going to be a cork. And corks are people who float to the top. And she said, I want to be a part of your story. And she gave me a job. And uh, that's how I started as a budget manager in accounting for George W. Bush. So I've never actually told that long version of the story before. So you were like, what, 22 here? Yeah. And then that, that's how we started. And then in 2001... You became yeah, the so with press the, so secretary. With them, so then I went on to become uh, the assistant to a guy who was really a key political advisor to George W. He took me to the Florida recount. I really became the bag boy to Secretary James Baker and Ken Melman. And they were really the two people kind of running the Florida recount. And when, when it was over, I thought I was going to go back to Monroe, Louisiana. I didn't have any guarantee of a job in the White House. And Ken Melman said, what do you want to do? And I said, I'd like to work in PR. That's what I majored in. And he said, Okay. And I went home and I thought that was it. I thought maybe if I got a job in the administration, it would be in the basement of Department of Veterans Affairs answering phones in the press office. And Ari Fleischer, uh, my dad walked to my bedroom and he said, I think it's a prank call. It says it's the White House operator. And I was laying in a bunk bed. It's like, I don't know if you've seen Sweet Home Alabama, but my family. And so my dad was like, I think, you know, I think it's a prank call. It's a White House operator. And so I answered the phone and it was Ari Fleischer, who I had only seen on television. I thought he was a celebrity, the press secretary. And he said, hey, Reed, he goes, I want you to meet me Monday morning at 8 a.m. at 17th and G. I didn't even know 17th and G was the White House. So I went to D.C. and he walked me in through the West Wing entrance, past the Roosevelt Room, you know, past the cabinet room, into the, you know, past the Oval Office and showed me my office, which was used to be Richard Nixon's dog kennel. And he said, this is your office. And I had an office in the West Wing and there were probably 50 people who were more qualified for me than that job. And and probably 80 people who wanted that job, you know, well, not that job. That was just being just a press assistant. But within about seven months, they promoted me to be the White House Assistant Press Secretary. And that was incredible because I had a real responsibility and gave on-the-record comments as the White House spokesman and had a seat on Air Force One. And there were probably 50 to 100 people who thought they were going to get that job, you know, who thought they deserved that job and did deserve it more than me. Uh, but I became the White House Assistant Press Secretary. So within about a year and a half of moving to Austin, I was on Air Force One and, you know, in and out of the Oval Office and, you know, living a, a Forrest Gump life. <laughs> what was it? What, like, what was one attribute that, that you think got you that spot? I mean, what, what did you do so differently than everyone else? You know, every five years or so, I feel like I get more hindsight clarity and more perspective on there's kind of two elements. I feel like you can, there's a thousand ver versions of this. If you read, you know, hundreds of books, you'll hear this over and over. There's kind of grit and hard work. And then there's uh, Malcolm Gladwellian forces. The fact that I was born a few hours from Austin, Texas, the fact that my teacher signed my signature and gave me all my electives and let me graduate early. If, if I had to go one more semester, I would have missed the Bush campaign. So there's all these kind of like the fact that I'm extremely blessed and was born at the right time in the right place. And I, went over there and started working on, uh, you know, I got on the, as Warren Buffett says, you know, he, Warren Buffett's version of the Gladwell point is it's half hard work and half what train you got on. I got on the right train and it was a, the train station was a few miles, a few hours from my house. And I also though did a lot of things that none of the other kind of trust fund Ivy league kids would do. Right. I stayed after work every night and I read all two or 300 pages in the president's briefing book every single night. I read everything the president read. I read every speech. I read everything on the website. I would, I, would, I would memorize every speech the president gave. I would actually do imitations and impersonations of the president and, and do press conferences with this BBC reporter. We would do Tony Blair, George W. Bush press conferences. So, you know, I, you're one of my favorite storytellers I've met in this journey of building this company. 
and got some crazy stories. I don't know if all of them are appropriate for this podcast, but you know, <laughs> you know, your your drive and your determination and your passion are something that's like really, really attractive. And I could see why you've been successful in your life and you've, you know, where where does where does that really, you know, come from? Because again, like it's not like you were all of a sudden, you know, in college and you're 20 years old and you're like, oh, I want to be in the White House. Like, where does that, how far back? Because I you know you've talked about your family dynamic and, and growing up in Louisiana and, and you talk about it like, uh, you know, kid from nowhere sort of thing, you know, kind of, can you talk a little bit about your childhood and sort of how that yeah, led yeah, you? Yeah, I think there's, there's this 50-50 construct that I always keep going back to. And I, I do think I was really ambitious as a child. Like there was this building being bought, built across the street from my grandparents. It's the first skyscraper in Monroe, Louisiana. And when I say skyscraper, I mean like 10 stories. And I would sit and watch it be built every single day. And I remember telling one of my friends or family when I was probably six years old that I was going to own that building one day. And I also would watch Saved by the Bell and I'd say, I'm, I'm going to live in Los Angeles one day. And I, I remember watching, you know, Pretty Woman where, you know, Richard Gere is getting driven in the back of a Rolls Royce. And I would, I would tell, I would always tell my friends, like, I'm going to, I'm going to have a driver one day. And I, I was just always painting. I'm a, I was, I was into visualization even as a young kid <laughs> and I was always daydreaming. And I'm a huge believer in visualization now, but I realized that I was into visualization as a kid before I even knew what that was. I, you know, basically made a decision as a kid, I was going to live in Los Angeles. I, you know, was going to have a driver. I wanted to, you know, I had all these visuals of what I wanted my life to be like. And, I always laugh all the time now because I'm really good friends with Mark Paul Gosseler from Saved by the Bell and I live in Los Angeles and I quit driving six years ago, mainly because of Uber, not because I have a Rolls Royce. But but I, I really did as a kid, even as a young kid, I had kind of this big, ambitious vision about everything I was going to do. And my my a lot of the people in my ecosystem were not like that. So I, I think there's some there's some nature to it. But then on the other hand, I have to give my dad credit. My dad was constantly the guy talking about how mediocrity was the poison of our generation. And he would always say, you know, everything I would do, if I made um, straight A's, my dad would say, well, congratulations. Uh, Monroe, Washita Parish, where we live, is the 33rd parish in education in Louisiana. And Louisiana is 49th in the country. So you're now the smartest kid in your class at the seventh best school in Monroe in the 33rd parish in the 49th state of education. He'd be like, congratulations. You know? And so my dad was always painting this big picture that you, you should want to be the best at what you do because there's this Bible verse that says you're, that if you're good at what you do, you'll serve before kings. And my dad said that my whole life, that you, know, you should be training to serve before kings, not to be the best in Monroe, Louisiana. So I think there was a ton of good parenting going on there, but also I think I was naturally kind of a a big vision kind of ambitious. And kid. in a lot of ways, you know, other than your dad, did you have any mentors growing up? Did you have any other than looking at television and, 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 you know, buildings going up, did you have anybody that was, you know, pushing you along coaches? I know you're a baseball player. So, so, so two, so two things, we didn't have a television. So when I did get to go to my grandparents, we mowed about 15 lawns on Saturday and my dad would give us a one hour break to watch say by the bell. So when I did watch television, I was obsessed with, with Los Angeles and television and things. But in real life, honestly, I say this all the time. My uncle Richard was the first, he was a small town, small business guy. But to me, he was a baller, right? He was home all day. He worked whenever he wanted to. He, he, he invented the first portable deer hunting stand that you carried on your shoulder out in the woods. And Sam Walton flew to Monroe, Louisiana and ordered like a million of them 
It ended, and Walmart retraded the terms and ended up putting him out of business. It's a tragic story. There's lots of those stories on MSNBC, uh, on CNBC. But um, bottom line is my uncle was, you know, he had a 36-foot RV and he'd go to trade shows in New York and he had all these cool products. And, you know, he was just a, in, in, looking back, he was a small businessman, entrepreneur in a small town. But to me, he was a baller and he was creative and he was constantly building things and expanding his company. And so he was really the first businessman I ever had access to. And he, he passed away when I was about 25, but he was, he was truly my first kind of entrepreneur. Inspiration. I love that. It was like you were looking mm. for small, like in, in everything you were looking for signs almost in a way, and then turning those into deep dreamy visualizations that was going to manifest into your life. I mean, that's just, I think that's so cool. So in terms of when we speak to our guests, it's been so interesting to hear patterns and, and kind of connecting the dots between high performing individuals. You know, we speak to Colin Markava and he goes, I knew at 10 years old that I was going to be winning on the PGA Tour. That is a belief that's innate, you know, 10 years old. You can't really, can you train it? Do you believe that you can train it later in life to truly believe? Because when you believe something, it's more likely to happen. Like. So, so it's such a great question. So I, as a kid, I was the kid who had a calendar and I would go out and I would, I would pitch a hundred, I would pitch my baseballs on my net that threw it back to me a couple hours a day. I would run every morning in the rain, sleet, snow, even when I was 11, 12 years old, I'd get up at six in the morning, I'd go run three miles, I'd throw baseballs in the backyard, I'd do pushups, I would give speeches in the mirror. I, I was just, I was, I was just that kid, right? I, I, I thought, I, I always said when I was a kid, I was going to, in fact, a, a joke. I always make this comment that my whole life I told my friends, like, I'm going to make a million dollars. And of course, in Monroe, Louisiana, that was the biggest amount of money denomination I could think of. And uh, I always, when I left George W. Bush in, in, in 2004, I had three goals. I wanted to have a family. I wanted to own my own business. And I wanted to make a million dollars. And I always say that no one told me that my first year of business at 26, I was going to make a million dollars and it was going to cost 1.8. So that usually gets a big laugh in my speeches. Uh, so, so, but, but in all seriousness, I, you know, I told my dad, my dad's, uh, one of my dad's friends gave me a car to go to college when I was 18 and uh, it was an old Oldsmobile. And he, I said, what do I owe you? How can I pay you a payment plan? And he goes, no, nope. he goes, I want you to, he goes, you've always said you're going to make a million dollars. So when you make a million dollars, you can pay me. So when I made my first million dollars years ago, I know for a fact he had forgotten about that. It had been a long time, right? It had been 15 years later. I sent him a, I don't know, a several thousand dollar uh, gift certificate to Bass Pro Shop or something. And because he had told me when you make a million dollars, you pay me a thousand bucks. And so I, I figured there was some inflation in there, but he was, he was like blown away that I remembered that. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Before we, before we go into like why you left politics, you know, George W. Bush had this kind of, you know, time i guess it was two years ago when he was in media a lot and he comes off as this hilarious guy really i think you know what are some some of your favorite stories about george w bush oh my gosh i mean one time he took a fake phone call from colin powell who said and said he had been on the phone with vladimir putin all morning because vladimir putin was angry with me for flirting with his assistant so everybody in the room was in on it but me and i almost fainted but you know he would he did an imitation of me one time i had a, a tan like a light khaki suit on and he came in and did a full-blown role play imitation of me selling used cars on air force one for everybody and you know i mean he was he was definitely a lot of fun he called me to the front of the plane one time and it sounded really urgent and 
I could hear the messages being passed, you know, read, read, where's read, where's read, 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 all the way to the back of Air Force One. I was making copies in the back of the plane and they're like, the boss wants you, the boss wants you. And I was like, huh. so I go all the way to the front of the plane and we were sitting at a, this hangar where he's about to do this huge rally and uh, he burped in my ear and then walked off the plane. So, you know, <laughs> he was, I always tell people that, you know, the Saturday Night Live skit version of him, he is obviously a Harvard MBA who went to Yale, who went to Andover, who was the chief executive of Texas, who turned their economy around and did a lot of incredible things. And anybody who ever sat in meetings with him knows that he consumed several, several hundred pages of briefing every night. There was no CEO group or senator that I ever saw him. He diced people up in meetings, in private meetings. I mean, he was he knew more about what you were coming to brief him on than you did. You could have spent your whole career on that topic. And he would ask them four or five questions that they didn't know the answer to. And I remember one time I heard him say, well, if I was coming to brief the president, I would have known that, right? And so he was sharp as a tack in, in a meeting setting. But he also was that Will Ferrell character in a way, that, that, that kind of frat guy. And I don't mean that in a bad way. He was, he was really fun and really funny. That's awesome. Do you still have communication with him at all or? Yeah, obviously he has two things. A, he's busy, right? He's, he, he gives hundred, you know, he, he has his democracy Institute, his foundation. He gives a lot of speeches. He does wounded warriors. And then at Thursday afternoon, he goes to his ranch for three or four days every weekend and doesn't talk to a soul. So he's, mm. he's not exactly a socialite like president, president Clinton, but I do when he's down here in LA or when I'm in Texas, I do see him a few times a year. And usually he just makes fun of me in front of uh, last time I saw him, we were at this dinner and he walked up to my whole table and he told about 10 stories that were really embarrassing for me. And uh, then he made fun of my businesses and then he walked off and I said, and people are like, I said, I, I had to tell the table, like, trust me, that's just his love language. You know? <laughs> that's so funny. So did you ever get to know his dad at all? Yeah. So great, great, speaking of, great speaking of love language, right? So, Oh man. So great story about his dad, his dad, one time, this is my favorite story about Bush 41. So I had to drive him home to his house. We were, they were playing golf in Kennebunkport, Maine. And they asked me to take him home to his house on a golf court. And so the entire drive to his house, I mean, this is a legend, right? World War II hero, CIA director, vice president, president. And, you know, I'm like a kid. I think I'd only been working for George W. for like a year or two. I'm like 24, 25. And I drive him probably 15 minutes, never says a word, not a word. And so when I get back, I say to the group of people, I don't remember if it was George W. that said this. I remember who said it, but I said to President Bush and a few other people, I said, man, I feel like Bush Sr. doesn't like me. And I think it was George W. who said, oh, he doesn't. And I was like, well, I was like devastated. Like I got punched in the stomach and I was like, what? And they're like, oh yeah, yeah he thinks you talk too much. And I was like, in hindsight, very fair point. <laughs> because uh, even though that was probably true that I did talk too much, on a more serious note, he came from a different era. When he was president, there was pre-9-11, there was no staff, you know, 44-car motorcade. You know, by the time Bill Clinton was president, there was uh, 1,500 people in the presidential footprint. We chopped it in half. But post-9-11, there's all these people. So when we go to President uh, Bush's senior's house in Kenny Buntport, George W. would call Blake, his assistant, and me and a few people and say, hey, let's play cards. And so George W. loved having the young guys around, me and Blake and Josh Decker and all these guys. And we played gin rummy and stuff like that. And I think George W. Bush, I mean, George Bush Sr., it just irritated him that his son's the president of the United States and has a chance to get away and have some like peace and quiet. And he's wanting to play cards with 25 year olds. Right. So I think he was always a little irritated that we were around. And, I, and looking back, I don't blame him. <laughs> well, you know, I guess before we move out of out of politics and into business and, and into golf, you know, 
one thing I'm curious from your perspective, you know, when you were when you were working for the White House, cell phones were, you know, like where we are today with cell phones, with media, with kind of the way that the government, you know, the federal government communicates with the public or the president now. What are your thoughts on communication? So so I told a story to the CEO group a couple of days ago, Mac, that I, I'm not trying to insert myself in history. I happen to just be this Forrest Gump character that was, I always say I had a front row seat in history. And the reason why I say it like that is because a lot of times when people introduce me, they'll make me sound really important. And I'm like, no, 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 guys, the, the pictures are, are, are real. The stories are real. But I was a 25-year-old kid. I, I wasn't advising pre- the president on war and policy, right? I was a kid. But I was in the room and I was in his little bubble and I was in the Oval Office and I, I did have a front row seat. But one story that I was a actual accidental participant in that I think in hindsight was very historic. It just it may, may not have been written about yet until I tell this story enough. Um, the head of this, I, I went into Ari Fleischer's office one day and the older I get and the more I look back, the more profound I realize this was. And I said to Ari, do you mind if I send out the statement by the president by email? And he looked at me and said what he said every day. He was a great boss. He looked at me and said, up to you, whatever you want. So I went out there, 25-year-old guy, and I hit send to about 3,000 reporters. And I bypassed the press pool, the 12-person press pool, the White House press corps, all these reporters that spent, the bureaus spent millions of dollars putting there and there. They had West Wing badges. They were all working in the White House. And since John F. Kennedy had been shot, their value and their relevance to society and the media was proximity. And so what happened every day before that for 150 years is you printed out the statements by the president or any announcement, you put it in a bin on the wall, and then you knocked on the Associated Press's door, gave them a two-minute heads up, and they posted it on the wire, and then everybody else went and grabbed it out of the bin like animals. They filed their stories, and then it got sent out to the broader media, right? So I just went and sent them. I was like, that's dumb. So I went out and sent the email statement by the president on something innocuous to several thousand people. And the head of the Associated Press, Ron Fournier, I don't want to use his name, so I'm just kidding. Ron Fournier, he's, a, he's actually a great guy, so I, I, I shouldn't have used his name. He's a, he's a phenomenal human, great dad, great husband, great reporter. Uh, but he came in losing his shit. I mean, just punching my desk, foaming at the mouth. Don't ever send out an electronic statement. That will never happen, ever. That's not how this place works. And I remember thinking, like, this is not like you. I mean, he was losing his mind. And what I realized in hindsight, as I've watched technology disrupt media, what I realized was the earth moved underneath the press corps that day when I hit send on an email. And I didn't even realize the implications of it. And I don't even know that he consciously understood the implications of it, but intuitively he could feel the earthquake. Their relevance, I always say, died that day. Now, fast forward a few years, Barack Obama sends out the first tweet signed B.O., And all of a sudden, the president's talking to 40 million people without having to go through the media. The media had always been a filter. You did not talk to the public. You talked to the White House press corps for 150 years. And they decided what to tell the public, right? And so Hmm. I always tell a story about the head of Associated Press because I always think, can you imagine how much he would have flipped his, you know, lost it if I would have said, hey, by the way, let's talk to a psychic. And that dude from The Apprentice, he's going to be sending out policy from the toilet in 15 years. (laughs) So, so, you know, fundamentally, technology disrupted the media in two big ways. One was it bypassed the, the, the press, the media, the reporters, it bypassed them as a filter. Number two is it brought along 15 years later, programmatic advertising. 
And that is a corporate word for clickbait, right? So, you know, the last crisis in 2008, the media were selling their advertising at a conference once a year. This crisis, the majority of revenue for the media comes from clickbait. Even our most trusted institutions like 60 Minutes and World News Tonight, they make their money from showing images of hazmat suits and chirons about death tolls and cases and epidemics and global pandemic and the headlines. I read a headline on Wall Street Journal the other day. It said, federal government considering stopping all domestic travel. And then I read the article. Nothing in the article said that. In fact, the whole article was about the federal government was not considering banning federal travel. So we have a media that is what I say misaligned with the public interest. They're misaligned. They are being comically rewarded for scaring the crap out of everyone. Meanwhile, this is going to kill about twice as many people as the normal flu, and we're sending ourselves into a self-depression. But that's all because of the, the disruption from technology. Number one, the press gets bypassed. They have lost their relevance. That's why Anderson Cooper and Jake Tapper and Rachel Maddow are screaming and foaming at the mouth on TV every day about stupid little things and saying, this is unprecedented. And they're going crazy on cable every day. You know why? There's 140 million voters and 1 million people watching cable. And so they've been bypassed as a filter. They've lost their relevance. And mm. number two, programmatic advertising has incentivized them to be sensationalists. And the combination of those two is what I call the death of journalism. So what does that lead to in your mind? Like mm. where, where does where does communication or where do you uh, get any sort of proper communication? Now you're now I won't go down this rabbit hole, but <laughs> but not to get too deep, but Plato prophesied, I know most people think of him as a philosopher, I call him a prophet. Plato wrote in the Republic that at the end of late stage republics, you deteriorate into a democracy. I think the combination of cable news and, and Twitter has made us speed from republic right past democracy, past the exit for crazyville into what I call a twitocracy. And so I understand, so when people say every voice should matter, every voice should matter to God. Every voice should not matter from governing standpoint, right? Every voice should matter for God. We love all people equal, all souls are equal. But from a governing standpoint, a republic was designed to protect ourselves from the emotional mob Twitter was designed to put a microphone up to the emotional mob. And so now we've gone from being a republic where smart people sat in a room, and unfortunately there was ra institutional racism and a lot of things built into that. It was not perfect. But a republic is where smart people sat in a room. These are guys who own land and pay taxes, and they made rational decisions in D.C. removed from the emotional mob. Now with the twitocracy we live in, um, the emotional mob is in charge. It's in charge of corporate policies. Emotional mobs are in charge of advertising. The emotional mobs in charge of parenting trends. The emotional mobs is in charge of our of our government for the most part. And so, mm. where does it lead to? I think it leads to something that's even worse than a democracy. And I don't really like where it's headed. I, I'm not saying anything predictive, but I don't like the direction. That's fascinating perspective. So I guess I have one more. Yeah, one more question. You know, obviously I'm from Sweden, and so I'm pretty black and white. I like I like science. I like facts this post-truth politics and kind of the more putting more weight behind emotional truths, do you think that's going to swing back in the other direction or are we on this path and we're, we're not going back? You know, you know, I think the death of journalism is, is makes it really difficult now to have a, to live in a fact-based ecosystem because there is no, you know, that same gentleman, Ron Fournier, since I'm picking on him, he also wrote a memo when he became the head of AP saying, telling the reporters, you don't have to verify your sources anymore with the other side. Go with your gut. 
And that was another nail in the coffin of uh, because AP was the gold standard of journalism. So I think without journalism to fact check things and the fact that with the it's not just journalism, it's not just the death of, of journalistic standards It's also the fact that technology fragmented media and the fragmentation of media means everybody goes and gets the information they want. But but one interesting thing about what you just said, because my wife's from Sweden, is that like the media has labeled people who don't believe in climate change as climate deniers, right? Because they're kind of ignoring science and facts, right? The truth is, most people, it's not that they don't believe in climate change, it's that they don't think it's a five alarm fire, like the government, like the like Hollywood wants you to believe, right? In other words, Manhattan is not flooding next year, right? Mm-hmm. It's like two inches per century, right? So the, the issue becomes one of prioritization. So if you raise your hand mm-hmm. in government and say, I don't think climate change is an emergency the way us, the way this really well-informed celebrity thinks. I don't think it's an emergency priority-wise on the budget this year. You're labeled a climate denier. But now oh. if you look at social distancing, and this is a huge compliment to, to Sweden, people who don't like social distancing are labeled social distancing deniers. And the iron, irony of that is that's a clever play on words by the media to compare them to climate deniers. But the difference is climate deniers, the media is saying, is ignoring facts and data. Social distance deniers are the people actually looking at the facts and data, right? And so yeah. it's really interesting how intellectually lazy the media is, right? I think Sweden has done a really interesting thing. I understand there's a mixed bag. You can probably tell the story a hundred different ways, whether it's working or not working. It's mm-hmm. too early to tell. But I do yeah. think Sweden... Although that's not a that's not a scale. I don't like when people use Norway and Finland and Sweden as examples. I always say those are boutique countries. They're the size of Baton Rouge, right? So the, yeah. uh, bo- the boutique countries are not doing anything you do at scale. Russia, China, United States. It's much larger consequences. So when someone tells me about an education theory or something in Finland, I'm like, yeah, that's great. We should try that in Austin, Texas, right? That doesn't mean it worked yeah. at scale. Um, but yeah. but I do think the fact based ecosystem that we used to live in. I don't know that that's coming back. So I'm sorry that was a no, long. No, that was answer. awesome. No, no, that, that that's great. And just to inform, we're we're recording this obviously during the the coronavirus crisis, and and Sweden is basically never never closed down. They pretty much the only country now in the in the world that doesn't have a quarantine. They're pretty uh, bold strategy, but it's based in science, and we'll see. I guess in a year whether. It's, and, and here's the thing. Here's my point about Sweden is that yeah. there's a lot of governors who are saying, okay, for my state, I've looked at the data, I've looked at my economy, I've looked at the risk, and we're not going to shut down in my state. We're going to tell older people to stay home and people with vulnerable immune systems to stay home. I personally think that's what the whole country should have done. And all this flattening the curve business, now they're being labeled as Trump supporters and they're doing this because of Trump. No, it's not about Trump. They are chief executives of their state. So I really respect Sweden for looking at the data and making their own decisions. Yeah, they're basically basically the the at the at this core they're saying long term as many people will get it and will die. It's just in different ways. So and that's a very possible. that's a very hyper rational way of looking at the data. And I don't know if you ever read the book Think Like a Freak, but Think Like a Freak by the Freak Economics guys is all about thinking hyper rationally. And here's the thing: when you think hyper rationally, you're not going to get approval from Twitter trolls. So this goes back to the plutocracy I mentioned earlier. Yeah. So Reed, yeah. so how did you how did you make so, the transition yeah. then? You know, because such a broad, you know, understanding, getting that front row seat, like you said, to history. You know, working for the White House. How, how did you make? You know, and I've talked to you a lot about your philosophy about parenting, and you're you're deeply philosophical. How do you go into then selling bats? 
Yeah, I mean, everything I did in my early business days was really all reactive. I Now, on one hand, it was visualization, right? Because I, I wrote down when I was 30 years old, on my 30th birthday, I wrote down a list of 10-year goals. And I wrote down that I wanted to be a CEO. I wanted to have equity. A major, I wanted to have a major piece of equity in a company. I wanted to do all these things. And within a year or two, and, and the reason why I th- I'm telling you about the visualization and those goals, the goal setting and dreamlining that I did to quote Tim Ferriss is because I think when opportunities do arise, you jump quicker, you go harder and you go all in faster if you already had that visualization, right? So I'm not saying that me writing down those goals, I want to be a CEO and own a company, all this stuff. I'm not saying that that manifested Marucci, but when that opportunity arised, instead of me looking at it as a potential PR client, because I had a PR business, a PR firm I founded, then I tried to co-found this management music management company with the Jonas Brothers. And then the 08 crisis hit and we made a mess. We lost our investor. It was a mess. Uh, but I learned a lot of lessons. And so then when these got, my brother called me from the governor's office of Louisiana and said, these, this star LSU baseball player is making bats from his backyard. 40 major leaguers are using them. They're looking to build the brand and raise capital and start a new company. I flew to Baton Rouge, walked in their warehouse, and got on a whiteboard with them for six hours and told them why I should be their CEO. I had never been a CEO, but I had been telling myself for two years that I was a CEO in my head. And so they said, we love it. So they made me an equal founder. Thirty, We were 33, 33, 33. And I said, I'll raise the money, but I'm the CEO. They said, you got it. And we started Marucci. And so we had a warehouse and you know some wood bats and relationships with players. And I went and raised about $5 million bucks. And yesterday, Yesterday, one of the biggest days of my career, we wired two hundred million dollars to our shareholders. So it was really exciting. Oh, that's awesome! And I think, like you talked, you talked yeah. about the you know the process of Marucci, and it was ultimate disruption. It seemed like to baseball. So, can you talk about that? I mean, I don't know how much you can get into that. Yeah, but absolutely. There's some interesting stories you've yeah, told. Yeah, yeah, sure. It. So, so yeah. So I, I look in hindsight. I always think about okay, what did I know, not know then that I know now? Right now. I think about everything in terms of you have to have like these six elements. You have to have the right product, the right people, uh, the right capital, the right structure, the right story, and the right market dynamic. A lot of young entrepreneurs, especially when they're being poorly advised by people that I call, I say they have faux emphaticisms. A lot of people that advise you when you're a young entrepreneur, they have what I call faux emphaticism. They're like really emphatic about something that they're partially right about or either wrong about, right? And because those people have big cars or maybe they have a private jet or they're rich, you think, oh, well, they must know what they're talking about. And usually they don't. Right. Usually all these financial advisors and smart executives have never built a company from scratch. So as a young entrepreneur, you're like, we're going to build a supply chain, a retail distribution and a, and a business from scratch. And then you go get advice from all these people who've never done any of that. They're just rich guys that have a lot of money. Right. And so in hindsight, we had an amazing product. We Kurt had tied up all the maple wood. So we had harder wood. He had obsessed over making the perfect bat juxtaposed against the fact that Louisville Slugger was really sloppy. They were a third generation business. They were stamping 32.2 ounces on bats and sending people bats that weighed 34 ounces. And so there was this market dynamic there. We had a good product. We had good people. and We had a great market dynamic. But we, I structured the company wrong, which led to us getting the wrong capital. And so that doesn't mean you can't succeed. If you don't have all those elements, it doesn't mean that you can't succeed. It means that everything will take longer. It means that everything will take longer than you plan, cost more than you budgeted, and be way harder than you imagined, right? So we ultimately succeeded, but it just took 10 years. And we sent everybody three or four X of their capital. It was great. and Everybody's high-fiving. But we should have been there probably four years ago had I structured the company. Because I structured the company wrong, 
and it created misalignment between the management and the founders and the shareholders. Every time we raised capital, everything got diluted. We got diluted. We never wanted to raise too much capital. So we were always raising a little bit of capital at a time. And I look back now and realize if we would have structured, if I would have structured the company properly, we could have gone out and a story I tell all the time, I'll be very quick, I promise. I went to get uh, raise money from the founders of Chick-fil-A. And they're some of my closest friends and also business heroes. They're savages. People love to write about their politics and their, and their religion, but they're really business savages, right? And so Andrew Cathy, who's my age, he's a grandson. And I went to him and I said, hey, he said, hey, he actually asked me, he said, hey, I'd like to invest in this bat company. I said, well, um, we're raising $2.5 million or maybe $5 million and we need 250 grand from you. And he goes, you're trying to build a national brand, right? And I said, yeah. And he goes, well, don't you think you probably need to raise 15 to $20 million and have two and a half million for marketing? And I was, I gave him this defensive hour long answer that we were raising, we would, we didn't need any more money than this. And we were still going to have a million cash left over and all this stuff. What well, turns out over the next 24 months, we raised $17 million. Uh, he was right. It was really painful. It was really slow. It was really dilutive. And because if I would have structured the company right, we could have gone out and raised $20 million the same day and we would have hyper-accelerated because we knew we had the best product, the best story, the best people, and the best market dynamic. The market was ripe for disruption. Easton was a fraud and Louisville Slugger was complacent. And we knew we had major league player partners, good product, good story. We were ready to disrupt. And the David and Goliath analogy uh, study that Malcolm Gladwell did is a perfect example. We had better tools and we had mobility and agility and we were ready to behead the giant and we did but it took five years longer than you talk about the giant and you know that competitive landscape obviously you know there's so many good products that just don't get through the pipeline that then can compete what i find really interesting about your story and sort of what you're doing with la golf partners now is you know marketing can you talk about how marketing played such an important role in, in that disruption Yes. So marketing is interesting because I think marketing and branding are two of the most misused and misunderstand words in all of business. And you and I, Matt, have talked about this. So I always start with my definitions. (laughs) Marketing is getting someone to do something, right? Branding is the words, images, and feelings that someone has about you. So when you say UGP, someone says something about you, they visualize something about you, and they feel something about you. That's brand. Uh, marketing is getting someone to do something in a defined amount of time with a defined return on investment. And so I would say I've always been better at brand than marketing, right? Marketing is more of a transactional thing where you're driving sales. And frankly, I actually wasn't that good at that. But building a a story-based brand, I I always say with Marucci, I created the story and then we built the company to match the story. And you could say, oh, that's a, you're a BSer. Or, oh, you know, you know, someone told me one time you can sell ice to an Eskimos. And I said, well, I've never sold ice to Eskimos, but I did sell cadmium metal, vacuum cleaners door to door, long distance service out of the phone book, boats, men's suits. I, I, I definitely know how to, to, to tell a story and to, and to grab people's attention. And so I think story-based brand building, I, I think the one thing I've done maybe that's unique to other businesses is I always built the brand and the story first, even when there was no revenue and no real customers. Mm. Yeah. And that's pretty, I mean, that's pretty common today with social media is like you, you create a brand without a product in the first year. Yeah. Oh yeah. Now you're right. Now it's more common. Obviously there was no social media. Uh, when we started yeah. in 2009, we were, Walking up that hill in the snow. What are you, Reed? What are your fundamentals in terms of you know building a story brand? I'm a huge fan of you know Blake Mikowski. He put me on to Donald Miller and building a story brand and all this different stuff. And and you know obviously with Tom's 
uh, incredible kind of entrepreneurial story and brand and, and learned a lot from him. What are, what are your kind of principles where, where it isn't, where it isn't bullshit, you know, in a lot of ways, I think a lot of times the story has to have substance, right. In order for it to catch on and for mm-hmm. people to get behind it. And what are your fundamentals around yeah, and crafting so that story? That's actually going back to what I just said. I really believe what I just said earlier. I think a story is one of the six elements of a successful business. I think you have to have the right product, the right people, the right capital, the right structure, the right market dynamic, and the right story. I think a lot of times the mistakes people make, and again, they're not always fatal. It doesn't mean you don't ultimately succeed, but the mistakes that entrepreneurs and I think business owners and investors make is they end up putting the wrong you know, the emphasis on the wrong syllable. They put, they put emphasis on those, either too much emphasis on one of those six or put emphasis too early on one of those. Like it doesn't help to put emphasis on the story before you have a product, right? It doesn't help to put emphasis on the capital raising if you're not structured properly. So there is a sequencing, there's an elegance to the sequencing of all this. Story is hugely important, but I think a lot of people will read a book about story-based brand brand building and they'll just kind of go all in on you know ideating and navel gazing and playing with their belly button hair about their mission and values and story when they're really their product size well then you know what about sustainability with that i think about that a lot like in building a business and you know blake's story of you know out of his apartment in venice to then putting shoes on kids all over the world and you know a lot of times stories can get you know my story about you know starting the company from nothing and and building it up teaching lessons out of a box and and then (sighs) But, you know, what about sustainability and story? Does the story sh- change and evolve? And how important is that to, to having long-term success in a business? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think it's a, um, I think it's a case-by-case on whether your business evolves, right? There are certain businesses uh, that don't require a lot of rev- evolution. Like Marucci never rebranded from the – I left being the CEO after four years, and I was the chairman for seven or eight. They never rebranded. Uh, they never changed the design, never changed the logo, and never changed the story. We started, we were player founded, player tested, started in the major league player's backyard, tested every product by big leaguers, and there's nothing you'll ever buy with Marushi's stamp on it that hasn't been tested and approved by big leaguers. We never changed that story. But then there's companies mm-hmm. that pivot to survive and change their business model because the economic climate changes. And so I think your story sometimes has a change with your business. Mm-hmm. So I have a question, Reed. When you talk, I mean, you go from politics to baseball to now golf and then, you know, PR, communications. You've done a lot of different things. When we hire coaches here at UGP, one of the first and most important questions I ask is, what is your why beneath the layers, right? You know, I like golf and like helping people. Those are superficial or some people like to make money. What are the you know five layers deeper than that for you? So the, 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 the why behind, oh, got it. So that's a great, I, I, that's a, I love that question. And I don't think I would have ever thought of this unless you asked that. My why is I don't know many private equity guys and I don't know many guys in business. And I'm not saying there aren't any others, but I don't know many who don't have financial goals. I've never had a financial, I've never had a number, a target number. I've never had a financial goal. And a lot of people have them, whether they talk about it or not, they'll have if I could get to this number, if I could get to this financial cash flow, you know, this amount of cash flow for a year, this amount of savings, or this amount of net worth, I've never had a financial goal. Um, I've always been big on visualization, and I moved out here in two thousand, late two thousand four, and I immediately met two guy, two guys, one named Todd Rader, one named Rusty Brown. Todd Rader, I, my, his mom was my guidance counselor, who's from Louisiana but older than me, and Rusty Brown was one of my investors, and those two guys gave me a visual of what an entrepreneur's life looked like. 
And I realized, uh, in fact, one of them said to me one time, this other guy named Richard Crawford said to me, you know, Reed, you're always going to have stress, drama, and cash flow problems. He said, I'm worth $400 million and I'm having liquidity problems right now because of taxes and divorce. He was like, you're always going to have cash flow problems, stress, and drama. You need to make sure you control your time and where you're doing your work from. He was like, you should always deal with your drama from nice places. He's like, if you've got to deal with drama, you should work looking out the ocean. He said, if you've got to you know, make sure, if you've got to be stressed all the time and work around the clock because you own your own business, then make sure you're in control of your time. And so at about 27 years old, I've set two business goals for myself that every year I would get more and more and more in control of my time, right? And then every single year I would get better at where I handled my stress from. And that includes the story I told you earlier about going down and sitting and working from the, looking out the ocean. Why I live in Newport Beach, California and work from my son's, you know, my office converted into a two-year-old's room, right? And so I'm a big believer in environment. There's a book called Willpower Doesn't Work, one of my favorite books ever, that's all about your physical environment. And then I also am a, a, a big believer in making sure you control your time. You only have about 750,000 hours in life. And I try to be militant about controlling my time. And so that is my, if you say, what's my why? I think about those two things, control my environment and my time. I extrapolate those out and say, well, when my, if you say, well, what are my goals or what are the, what's the why behind my business goals? Well, when my kids, when my daughter, I have two daughters, when they get to college or whatever they're doing, hopefully they're business owners and not in college memorizing outdated facts. But, but when, when my kids get older, I want to be able to buy houses and live where they live. I want to travel to where they travel. I want to go rotate from one kid to the next and see all my grandkids anytime I want. So I don't have any financial goals. I want to, I want to be in a situation to control my environment and my time. Yeah, that's deep, man. So it's a little bit legacy too and, and family. I mean, it sounds like. Yeah, I mean, look, and you've heard, you've heard all the cliches. Nobody gets old and wishes they had worked more, right? So I love working and I love what I do, but I also want to be in complete control of where I do it and how how many hours a day I work. I mean, I usually get up really early, work really hard for several hours. Then I work out, sit in my sauna, play with my kids, have breakfast. Then I'll work for a few more hours. I, I kind of treat the day as like six different three hour, four hour windows. We have that same yeah. reprieve. I remember running into you in Orange County, like, I don't know, a year ago. That's, that's right. Like, that's right. In the parking that's right. Lot, like, you do this too? I'm like, yeah, I just got one put in my garage. You're like, all right, I'm doing it as well. <laughs> you, you, I forgot you were my inspiration, Mac. You're, you're my inspiration in a lot of ways, but I will say that infrared sauna, you are the reason. I forgot about that. That infrared sauna I bought was probably the best $1,500 I've spent in my life. Especially right now. It's just incredible to have that. Because I use it. I use it because it has Bluetooth. So I either use it for a podcast or I use it for, I sit in the pitch black and use it for meditating. Mm -hmm. But either way, it's amazing. It's so great. It relieves so much stress. So talk about EQtainment. I think that's so relevant right now. I know you and Sophia have worked really hard on that. Can you tell us a little bit about that before we get into into golf and shafts? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So my, my wife, was really interested. She was, and when she was at Harvard, she had Daniel Goldman came to speak and he's kind of the father of EQ. I think he actually coined the term. And so she became really interested in emotional intelligence at a young age. And then when we had kids, uh, we were on a hike one day and we were mapping out what our priorities for parenting were. And we decided emotional intelligence was really going to be the core of our parenting. So we went out and found that there was absolutely no resources or tools for emotional intelligence. Everything that was out there was very wonky and academic, or it was very indirect. Like it would be like blues clues, silly weirdo talking to a cartoon the whole time. And we teach emotional intelligence. You're like, really? It's like a triple bank shot. Like, so people were really 
indirectly teaching emotional intelligence or it was very academic. So she went out and found there was about 40 years of data. And the amazing thing is it's one of the only topics in education that there's total consensus around. You really can't find anyone that won't say emotional intelligence is, is a stronger correlate to life success than even academics. You can make, mm. there's about, I forget the exact numbers, but I think a couple thousand kids who've made perfect scores on the SAT and they followed them for 25 years. And out of all these kids who made perfect scores on the SAT, think about all the studying and how smart they are. Their average income was $49,000 and 70% of them were professors, right? So academics don't guarantee any sort of life success, right? Whether it's mm. personal or professional or financial. So we decided, uh, Sophia went out and she created a content uh, hub and it has lots of applications. We have an award-winning board game, an app for parents with 250 pieces of short form content. We made a, sh a kid's show with uh, 48 episodes and each one with an influencer or celebrity. We have original music. Uh, and then she also turned all of that into a school curriculum that's now an online curriculum. So we're actually launching a campaign in the next week or so where we're going to give away $30 million of free subscriptions to families of the 30 million at-risk kids that are at home. And then we're looking for corporate sponsors uh, to do $30 million of donations to put this curriculum in the schools for, for the teachers, for online distribution for the kids, for these 30 million at-risk kids. Um, so we're really excited. We feel like we built this. It took five years to build out this whole platform, and we have it built. And now all of a sudden, 70 million kids are homeschooling. Teachers are having a hard time. Parents are having a hard time. So we've got really the only scalable solution for mental health. And we also have the, and it's also fully available in an online curriculum. So, you know, the chicken and the egg, we don't have a national sales force. So we decided the hack, a way around that, but we could get national distribution is to find corporate sponsors and corporate donors who say, I want to sponsor LA. I want to sponsor D New York. I want to sponsor Dallas. Uh, and then we're going to get an NFL player in each of those cities and make some content. So we're very excited that we, we, we are excited. We have this tool available. But we've got to do some work to, to get it yeah, out. That's that's so cool. And, and when you talk about emotional intelligence, maybe for everybody, like, can you talk a little bit about what that is in kids? I know you have a deep philosophy about how you parent your kids. You have awesome kids. All four of them are incredible and 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 really well behaved and seem like they all have like a drive and passion, even the two year old. So can you talk a little bit about what is emotional intelligence? Yeah, in kids? I, what are I, your expectations? I, I, always, I always joke that. I always joke that when you have four kids, I can objectively say that my two-year-old special. <laughs> <laughs> we were throwing the football yesterday, and he was throwing spirals to my chest. And I told my wife, I was like, I don't want to be one of those parents. But man, this, this kid's special. <laughs> so, so um, just like your 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 prodigy golfer. So, emotional intelligence ultimately is in three big buckets. There's there's like fifteen or sixteen components of it, but it's there's three big buckets: emotional identification where you identify, in fact, for boys, my wife always jokes that from, for boys from age four to 70, they struggle with this, which is a, a boy will, if they're embarrassed, they'll think they're angry. If they're scared, they'll think they're angry. If they're feeling insecure, they'll think they're angry. So boys translate everything to anger. And, and so identifying and, and listening to my wife teach people about emotional intelligence helped me as an adult businessman. There's so many times I think I'm raising angry I'm raging angry. And really, after 30 seconds of breathing, I realize I'm just kind of scared or I'm just kind of embarrassed uh, of something that happened. And it's really not anger. And so emotional identification and the, there's all these long-term studies that show that if you can learn to identify your emotions and manage them and then control your physical impulses, that's a stronger correlate to anything than anything they teach in school. So the second bucket is impulse control. In fact, my wife has this exercise where you balance on one leg and kids sing happy birthday in an angry voice. And so the same part of your brain that controls your limbs controls your emotion. 
And then the third bucket is social scenarios, being able to read the room, being able to read verbal, uh, verbal cues, social cues, body language, being able to read a room is, is really important. So those are the three big buckets of EQ. Oh, that's, that's so cool. Hmm. And for kids, I mean, it sounds like a complete game changer, as you said, mental health, but education as a whole, you know, has been traditionally so focused on, on learning facts and and like you said potentially very outdated so if you have time i'll take 60 more seconds on education it's a passion topic um yeah. mac has heard mac has heard this but you know we uh, the, the format of education in the united states exactly zero people ever said hey we should have kids go sit at a desk eight hours a day 250 days a year that's the optimal way to learn no one literally no one ever said that what happened was is there were three million kids in the public school system world war ii happened Hitler started bombing everyone. We became the manufacturing floor of Europe. Women went to work. And then all of a sudden, the public school system went to 3 million to 40 million overnight. And so school became a, fub, a public-funded version of daycare. So the format of school, which is sitting at a desk, raising your hand, finger over your mouth, single file line, it was actually inspired by prison. It's a prison format, right? And then, then because of the industrial revolution in manufacturing, we spent 100 years teaching kids what to think instead of how to think. So one of the things I'm most excited about with this disruption to school, school needed to be disrupted, but teachers unions won't allow that disruption. So now Corona has done what no politician could ever do, which is disrupted the format of school. Well, what happens is when you're, when your kids at home, you can customize things to their strengths and weaknesses, right? And so this, this thing of this format of school has been, the format of school is 100 years outdated, but this thing where we tell kids what to learn and what to memorize is also 100 years outdated. So our goal for our kids is to teach them how to think, not what to think. Reed, Reed okay. one, one more question about, you know, about maybe fatherhood, parenting, education, child psychology. I, I, I remember talking to you one time and you had some really like really deep fundamentals and rules around around your kids and I remember I was talking about it my daughter's almost nine and just kind of you said about you know lying isn't tolerated can you maybe refresh my memory a little bit oh I talked about yeah the three, I, I love that D's. so much and it was something I talked uh, to my wife yeah, about a so, lot so and, yeah it's a derivative it's a derivative of what I got from my parents and, and, and my parents did a lot of parenting seminars my dad was a minister and basically there's three things we don't tolerate right which is disrespect and, and I know there's a lot of controversy out there say kids need to be rebellious and kids need to be disrespectful, not when they're young. When they're young, that's not safe. If you tell a kid, stop, and he keeps going, he'll get killed in the parking lot, right? So when kids are young, disrespect and defiance are big. So disrespect, defiance, and dishonesty are the three things. So if, if my wife says, stop, and you don't stop, we don't stand there and be like, I told you, I remember this morning, our kids did 100 burpees each because the kitchen was dirty when we woke up. And we don't nag them. We don't yell at them. We're just like, oh, the kitchen's dirty. Let's go. And, you know, for my seven-year-old, 100 burpees is a lot. And so we, bottom line is uh, we don't allow dishonesty, defiance, or disrespect. Yep. I agree with that a lot. And disrespect now, the, the modern way of saying that is be kind, right? That's kind of the modern way of saying that the old school is like, don't be disrespectful to your mama. Now, the more modern way to say it is we're going to be kind to each other. Yeah, and it has to go. It's a two-way street, right? I mean, they have to know. They have to right. get respect in order to understand what it is to give it. Absolutely. Yeah. So to, let's let's shift into golf now. Why why golf? And talk about your new venture. And I know you always talk about how you're, you look like a two handicap, but you're really a eight. And, you know, so to tell us a little bit about golf. Well, I, 
I mean, that you 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 have to acknowledge that's true. <laughs> People always think I'm going to be a good golfer. Right? <laughs> uh, although you, your chipping tips you taught me at Pebble Beach have fundamentally changed my gambling and my golf <laughs> because I already have the perfect I already have the perfect practice mat at home, and I I go hours without missing a putt, and I I'm a pretty decent ball striker. But my chipping, as you know, I've always been like a, a clown. So, but in terms of the golf industry, I had, I had this moment a few years ago where I realized I was effectively a free agent, which, you know, the downside of being an entrepreneur for 16 years is never having stable income, right. Or visibility. The upside is I'm constantly looking at a blank sheet of paper and a blank sheet of paper excites me more than anything in life. And so I was kind of like, well, if I could do anything, what would I want to do? Right. I, I kind of reactively got into the music management business. I reactively got into the baseball business. I always tell people, uh, you've heard me say this at my um, salon talks I host at Grand Havana Room. The two weird, kind of two odd secrets about me is I don't like baseball or politics, right? And so I can I can talk about them both for a long time, but I don't, they're not my passions. And so I kind of had this moment where I said, "What would I do if I wanted to do something?" So I went. On, I was I was on holiday vacation. I went on GoDaddy and I bought LA Golf Partners for eight dollars, and decided I was going to go in the golf business. And so because I wasn't in a hurry, there's no arbitrary timeline. My thesis is that I wanted to slowly identify technology, brands, and eventually real estate that I think would form like a, the basis for a global golf platform, a global golf platform. Now, like a lot of things, I, I'm going to hold myself to the same standard I was giving you earlier for young entrepreneurs. I've made some mistakes on those six elements, right? Like I, I actually didn't, once again, you think that this is the definition of insanity. I didn't have it structured properly at first because I want to be able to you know, right now I'm sending a proposal tomorrow to a sovereign wealth group asking for hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars. And so I structured, I finally got structured in a way where I can take in unlimited capital and go buy. So my, my vision, my vision originally, and now to this day is to acquire cash flowing brands, cutting edge technology and, and good IP. Reactively, you have to always be light on your feet, right? Uh, as they say in football, keep your head on a swivel. I got a phone call and got an opportunity to acquire this the assets of a of a legacy golf shaft business on the PGA Tour that owned about five brands. I shut down China, Mexico, basically restructured the business and then hired two really good engineers and partnered with Bryson DeChambeau and, and basically have designed five new brands. And in our first year, we got over 50 players on the PGA Tour. So that's a tiny business. It'll never be scalable, but it's basically a redo of Marucci where we partner with players, we have the best product, and now we have, I think, the best story. We're the only American-made shaft on the PGA Tour. And I think over the next three to four years, we're going to cause some major discomfort to Fujikura and, and Rogue and some of those So that shaft company was your entry point, but it sounds like with LA Golf Partners and from chatting with you, that's part of some much bigger, yeah. bigger thing there, right? Yeah, you know, it's funny. I actually heard somebody say one time about David Bonderman when they put the 500 million into C. And I, this is funny to compare myself to Dave Bonderman. I'm not comparing myself to Bonderman or LA Golf Shafts to CAA. But someone said jokingly one time that David Bonderman, they, that when TPG bought CAA or put 500 million in CAA, it was the most expensive backstage pass in the history of the world. Like it was like, you know, private equity guys, when they're worth billions of dollars, they buy businesses sometimes just so they can have. Oscars passes and backstage passes, right? And in a weird way, when I saw this opportunity, because it was I was buying millions of dollars of assets for a small amount of money, I thought, you know what? This is like an inside the ropes pass. I'm going to have something to talk to players about. I'm going to have something that's going to get me out on tour to put my ear to the ground and find other deals and meet people. And that's exactly what's happened. So the business itself is small and not scalable, but it has absolutely served the right purpose for my career strategy. 
and at the core you you really love golf is that why oh i love golf so much and and and, and golf is is such a fickle mistress right because um, how could, if any human treated me the way golf did, I'd never stay friends, right? I mean, it's like, I, 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 I think this is actually on a, on a, on a serious note. I've been telling my potential investors in this LA golf partners vision, I'm trying to raise a lot of money right now. And I've been telling them, you know, golf needs to be funner, faster and cheaper. Right. And I think in this video game generation, it, telling a kid, Hey, you can work and think about this. Think about telling this Fortnite generation, you can work at this eight or nine hours a day seven days a week, maybe never get good. But if you do get good, maybe never play college. If you do play college, that doesn't mean you'll play in the pros. And if you do play in the pros, you may never play on the PGA Tour. And if you do play in the PGA Tour, you may never make money. So that's a very tough message for this generation. And I, I'm, I, one of my goals with this platform is to make public municipal golf uh, a lot more fun. In a lot faster. So do you do you do you like the grind of the game though yourself? I mean, do you like the kind of oh, I, getting I punched it. in the face every it. time you get out there? Pure optimistic and well, but I don't think I'm I don't think I'm representative of the larger. First of all, I'm not representative of this younger generation. Second of all, I'm not representative of the average person in terms of their work life. I I, I have an extraordinary amount of stress and drama, which is all self inflicted. That's not whining or complaining, but I I. I would, I love to go out with a cigar and a La Familia and walk for five hours. Right. And, and, and be able to tell everybody I know, I'm sorry, I can't have my phone on for the next seven hours. Right. Like I love that. Right. Uh, but I don't think for the, for the mass public that that's a good business model going into the next So Reed, you mentioned Bryson. Bryson's a pretty polarizing character on the PGA tour. Is he, is he as nice as he seems? Yeah, so Bryson, I think like a lot of people, and I, I say this about my mom used to always say this about me. Well, we actually make fun of my mom for saying this all the time. No matter who you brought up, she'd be like, he's misunderstood. I think Bryson is very misunderstood. And, you know, as a young person, if he was a wide receiver in the NFL, people would love his antics and his uniqueness and his quirk quirkiness, right? Um, he happens to be in a sport that I think needs to really take a chill pill, right? I mean, I can't. I can't say enough how repulsed I am by Justin Thomas having somebody kicked out of a tournament because his ball, the guy cheered when his ball rolled into a bunker, like give me a break. Right. So like the, the only reason these kids make 10 to 20 million bucks a year is because of all these beer drinking sports, radio, crazy fans. If those, if, if, if only rich guys in sweater vests were at the golf tournaments, nobody would make 10 to 20 million bucks a year. Right. So I think that, uh, golf as a whole takes itself way too seriously, right? And there's a reason like even Bel Air Country Club, LA Country Club, all these country clubs are going after younger members is because golf takes itself way too seriously. Golf is an incredible sport. It's an incredible test of character, incredible test of athleticism. And there's nothing that feels better than hitting a good shot or playing a good hole. I've never strung together more than a couple good holes yet. But it's incredible. But at the same time, I think Bryson um, is this combination of an old school kind of technical uh, scientist, right? And at the same time, he's a young kid who talks too much and, you know, thinks that gaining weight and ball speed is the key to golf, How's right? And so I, I, I love Bryson. I want to say this before, I, before, because I just said something that could be misinterpreted. I think Bryson is one of those people who every person he's ever been around tells him that he's the smartest person, you know, in the world. And he is that smart. I listened to him at dinner one time. And we actually joked with him. We had dinner for a long time and I was spellbound. 
He laid down on the ground to show me the angle of a plane with his elbow and a steak knife on the floor of a restaurant. And it was, a, it was one of the most incredible two hours I've ever listened to at golf. Then he switched over to talking about education and emotional intelligence, not knowing I was sitting there as a quasi expert on that. And I made a joke to him. I was like, Hey, hey, hey. I was like, that two hours on golf was fascinating. When you shifted over to politics and education, uh, I was like, you might want to shut that down. Right? So Bryson is this amazing kid. He's full of life. He's brilliant. He's in, I think he's on a quest that everyone should be on. And you know more than I do, which is he wants a replicatable swing and a stable shot line. So how's, how's he impacted then the growth of the company? How's, you know, being involved with LA golf partners and, and with the shaft company, how, how's he impacted in testing or, or, well, it's, yeah, it's so first of all, he's been amazing. Our engineer, we had, we hired what I think is one of the best engineers in the history of the industry who had had 25 or 30 major championships to his credit. And our engineer said to me one day that on his first phone call with Bryson, he had to go back and look into his college textbooks at some of the terms Bryson was using about the yaw of vibration, whether it was counterclockwise yaw vibration and whether the balls, I mean, it's incredible. So obviously that made a huge impact on the way we develop product. So he's incredibly helpful with developing, designing, and, and testing product. Having said that, where his value, I think, this hasn't proved yet, this hasn't proved out yet, but my theory is that Tiger calls him for advice on equipment. You know, other players, when Bryson started using our shaft and his putter, 25 top 100 guys started calling him and us saying, hey, why are you using that shaft? When he went to all graphite shafts and his irons, I mean, you're talking about, major champion golfers were going, well, I thought graphite shafts were heavier. Well, why is he using a graphite shaft and his irons? So people that you think would know a lot about equipment and golf don't know anything about equipment or golf, right? They've got very unsophisticated teachers, very, uns- I mean, not teachers, what do you call it? Instructors out there that are really good at golf mechanics, swing mechanics, but they don't know anything mm-hmm. about technology or shafts, right? So Bryson is actually kind of informing the PGA Tour that, hey guys, there's real data behind this, right? Yeah, makes a lot of sense. I have three quick ones. Okay, okay. So I'll give pull- you rapid fire answers. <laughs> no, yeah, you, I'll, you pull I'll, up show to the- you, I'll show you that no, I you can can't. do it. I'll no, prove to you. Okay, <laughs> so you pull up to, let's say, Bel Air. Anybody in history, alive or dead, who do you want to get a lesson from? Who do you want to play with? And who do you want to have a beer with afterwards? Oh, man, that's awesome. That's a, that's a question that when I get it, I always wish I was more prepared. So... I would love to to grab a beer with John F. Kennedy, not because he was president for 1,000 days, but because his dad was Joe Kennedy and he was partners with the mafia and his brothers was partners with the mafia. And they were right in between the bootlegging, the mafia and the government. And, you know, because the fact that he, you know, was having a love affair with the director of the CIA's wife, uh, wife who then he shut, tried to shut down the CIA. And so John F. Kennedy's the guy I want to have a beer with. I'd love to play a round of golf love with Arnold Palmer. I think he was the, I think he was way ahead of his time in terms of style and charisma. And then what was the other one? Who do you want a lesson from? Oh, who do I want a lesson from? Oh, wow. I I don't know that there's anyone I'd want a lesson from other than Tiger. And here's why, not because of the reasons everybody else would say. Tiger said something one time that changed my life because I spent 20 years with people telling me, Read, slow down, buddy. Slow your swing. Yeah, let the club do the work. Swing 70%, 80%. Be smooth, whatever. And I heard Tiger say one day that you should swing as hard as you possibly can without falling over. You should be athletic. And when I started doing that, it 
it cured my dispersion from awful. I went from being a 29 to an 11. <laughs> Just trying to, because I, because I stopped thinking about mechanics and started being more athletic. And, that, and that's yeah. what I think Tiger, Tiger brought athleticism to the game that I think had been missing. All three of, the, all three of those yeah. guys, you would have been swarmed by women, it sounds like to me. <laughs> that would have been a serious gallery. <laughs> that's funny. Reed, dude, thank you so much for taking the time with us. We really appreciate it. You've been an awesome mentor to me and a friend in this process. And um, I look forward to getting out and playing some golf with you once this is all done. I'm a huge fan of UGP. I literally talk to someone at least once a day about you guys. So I'm proud of what you guys have built. And so thanks for having me on. Thanks, Reed. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. Such a wide ranging conversation. So we really appreciate you taking the time. It's it awesome. It's fun. It's fun. Later, brother. All right. All right, guys. Y'all like have a great one day. Of my favorite conversations. Thanks, it was great. All right, y'all have a great day. Thank you. Thank you.